And now I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Della Brajic. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and your background is in nutrition research. Tell me briefly what that is. Okay, so we're researching develop new types of dietary fibres and increase the opportunity of foods that contain higher levels of specific types of dietary fibres. So we work with uh, plant breeders and plant, plant geneticists um, who uh, breed new varieties of grains, wheat, rice and barley, um, to contain specific uh, higher levels of specific types of dietary fibre. Um, with the aim of this to improve health, uh, particular focus gut health. Well, it's well known that uh, in the community, I think now, that the health message has got out that we need a high fibre diet. But let's face it, who's going to sit down to a bowl of bran? So I'm guessing that you're choosing foods that are palatable, that people want to eat, and then you're helping to find ways to get more fibre into those sorts of food. Am I roughly on the track there? Yeah, that's correct. So um, uh, uh, one of the first um, cereals that produced by our group that's been in the market for about 10 years now is Barley Plus. Um, and that is a, a barley cereal, which is very high in um, in fibre and resistant starch. Um, and so that's commercially available currently. Um, and a new one, uh, cereal that we're working on is um, called High Malose May. Star- sorry is high amylose wheat um, and this wheat uh, basically has the fibre within the endosperm so it means that the white component of the flour is higher in fibre so this new grain um, has the potential to add fibre to a lot of the more refined for example products such as uh, bread uh, white bread that could be uh, legitimately high fibre based on just the, the grain component So we're working with the dietary preference of the general public. I just want to backtrack a little bit to the nutrition side and can you just give me a really short description of why we need fibre in our diet? Okay, so fibre is very important about keeping us regular um, and it's also very important for feeding the good bugs in our large intestine. So they produce uh, substances called short-chain fatty acids um, and one of those, butyrate, um, is linked with uh, a reduced development of colorectal cancer. So uh, high fibre diets are linked with not only um, reduced risk of colorectal cancer but also reduced risks of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I remember watching a really fun show on the television and she was talking to a person who ate almost no fibre. She'd eat chocolates and the diet, her diet was just gobsmackingly bad and she said let's do an experiment and she ate a bowl of sweet corn, in fact they both ate sweet corn and then their regular food and they measured how long it took for it to pop out the other end (laughs) now the difference was very stark because it took the uh, the tv presenter with a with a good diet hours like 12 hours or something for that to move through her body and for the other woman it took 
Oh, have I got this back to front? Uh, it probably took a, yeah, a couple of days, maybe. <laughs> yes, I've got it back to front. So the, with, with a high-fibre diet, you would move the stuff through your body fairly quickly, but with a really bad diet, it would just sit in your gut for, well, interminably. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, typically you'd expect to pass the stool every 24 hours or so, and that's the typical transit time, uh, give or take, you know, it might be... Uh, three quarters of a day compared to two days um, but uh, the next stage is uh, constipation and chronic constipation which is uh, very uncomfortable which could be three days five days a week plus um, of passing a stool which yeah is, is not ideal by any stretch of imagination yeah, yeah well, let's not dwell too much on that one now let's go back to the high fiber foods that you're developing and what stage are you at with that um, so uh, there's a, a, another food that we've, uh, or food source that we've been looking at, and that's from algae and seaweed. And um, that work, we've been uh, looking at a particular species of seaweed found in South Australian waters, and a PhD student has developed an isolation method to extract various nutrients from the seaweed. And so uh, we undertook a commercialisation uh, accelerator program to evaluate what opportunities there were for creating new products that could provide health benefits to people um, and w one of those components was the uh, high fiber and polyphenol component within the seaweed and we've done some uh, pre preliminary preclinical pre studies that have demonstrated the uh, various uh, health benefits particularly in terms of fermentation uh, in the large bag. Ah, so this would be a food additive. You just wouldn't sit down to a bowl of this seaweed, am I right? That's right. So we need to come up with creative ways that people can consume this product and that it's a palatable product that people can con consume in a reasonable quantity that would give them the health benefits. Isn't, that's the, often the problem in research is that people can come up with these amazing scientific advancements but the, they haven't thought through the commercialisation process and then that science ends up sitting on the shelf because it's either it's not feasible, you can't scale it up or it's it ends up having some other side effect that uh, prevents uh, the common consumer from even finding it uh, enjoyable to eat. Yeah. To, to use that term experience, how does the consumer experience this thing? So what would it be like? I'm thinking of soy for example, which is used in a very large proportion of all food. Would it be something that would be would used to bulk up the food? Would it add flavour? What would it be like to no. consume something that has this extract in it? So the uh, the particular extract is, uh, is not as strong in flavour and it would be pairing it with other food ingredients that match that flavour. So um, that's part of the food technology uh, side of this work and that's uh, ongoing work at the moment. Does that have a strong flavour? Um, it, it depends on the extract. The fibre and polyphenol has a, a moderate uh, flavour, but some of the other extracts, the mineral extracts that we have, 
pretty well have no flavour at all. So it's also the challenge of going to market is deciding which products we go with first um, because we've got quite a large number in our suite of products we can... Well, I'm guessing here you would be working with the food producers, the, the, the... the processed food industry and they would be looking for ways in which their your product could be useful to them yes uh, that's right and but even before going to that avenue we um, do a lot of that work in the house beforehand to evaluate and um, what are potential opportunities for the product um, and and then a, a approach the industry to then come in and see whether it's something that appeals and you say in the commercialization is important that's a way of getting your product out there actually used? Uh, yes, it's an essential part of the process. Um, generally as a university or as a CSIRO organisation, we can't take products straight to market, so we have to partner with industry to um, to, to get the research out, out there to the consumer. Would you have any tips for other people who want to follow a similar path? Yes, uh, so there's now an increasing number of commercialisation programs. The one we were involved with was an on Accelerate program that's uh, administered by CSIRO, but there's many universities that are setting up their own similar or slightly different programs. So um, for anyone who's uh, developed a novel scientific idea and think that it's uh, what they at a stage that they want to take to market, then it's definitely worth participating in one of these um, commercialisation programs. Yes, and I think you've already mentioned some of the things like what's it like to what's it like from the point of view of the consumer. Well, uh, Dr. Damien Bellabrajic. Yes. Jitch, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of hanging out to taste some of this now, but uh, maybe you don't have any handy. Thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Happy chatting anytime. Thank you. All right, so at the new investigator forum here at the Shalam interviewing Dr. Baha Mirigazade. Yes, hello. <laughs> and you, your early career was as a molecular biologist. Just very briefly and in simple terms, what is a molecular biologist? Well, a molecular biology just look into the cell and into the proteins and molecules inside a cell and look at the interaction that what those molecules do and uh, how they can put that in the context of the general biology. So we, we learn about uh, like proteins, hormones, and receptors in a cell, how they work, how they interact, how they make our body to respond generally. So you're right down in the very micro detail of life there. It kind of makes me think of something like a car. You're into the little screws and the, and the materials and things that are used. It's very small detail. And then you made a transition into immunology. Just tell me briefly about what brought you to that transition. Yes, correct. So, yes, yeah, so I'm a specialized uh, in molecular biology, but then I decided to have a transition to immunology because I believe that immunology is a basis of many, if it doesn't work well, if our immune system doesn't work well, is a basis of so many different diseases, from cancer to immune-related diseases or um, heart diseases. It could be, neur- you know, uh, neurological diseases. So that's why. So I, I found that very uh, practical. If I put my expertise from that very basic knowledge of science into practice into immunology. 
So it's an extremely powerful mechanism in the body and it's one of the areas of medicine that I just feel completely daunted by because it's so complicated. But there's a good side and a bad side to the immune system. So there's diseases like, uh, no, I'm thinking of diabetes, but there's oh, yes. a, and some sorts of arthritis and things where the exactly. body attacks itself. Is Am I on the right track there? Yes, exactly. So what you're mentioning is uh, autoimmunity. It means that our, uh, our cells, our immune cells cannot recognize between self and non-self uh, cells and they're going to attack themselves actually. And then it leads to autoimmunity like lupus. But yes, I have a friend who has lupus, yes. but uh, there's a good side to it. So that's, that's the, the downside of a powerful system. With a powerful system, you can do a lot of harm or a lot of good. Your focus is on how to use the, the body's immune system well, basically what we do is, um, in a translational research, is that we put now, again, uh, from the context of immunology, we are going to translate it to be more practical for the community, right? So we do science behind it, but now we are trying to understand underneath of this um, immunity, underneath of this autoimmunity, why a, why a cell cannot differentiate between self and non-self. So we try to understand why that happening. And then we try to uh, interpret that in a genetic format because we know that everything comes from genetics. So that's a difference between us and that's a common things between us. So yeah, so we look at the genetics behind it eventually. Okay, so my genetic material is very different to yours, is very different to Tazanim, who's sitting at the end of the table <laughs> there. And if I come into, say, a hospital, maybe Canberra Hospital, and I have a condition and I need treatment, how can you help me? Well, that's a excellent question. Yes, yeah, so the thing is that depends on what kind of disease that person, you know, has. For example, we are working with uh, autoimmune disease and immunodeficiency. And imagine if someone with, uh, you know, immune-related disease, they come to us and we see, okay, so this is the manifestation of this disease. For example, that person has a common variable immunodeficiency, CVID. And then, well, of course, we, we've got treatment, like a very general treatment that people, they get, right? But for for us, in a research part of it, is that we sequence the genome of that person, of that patient, because we know that there are some uh, mutations in the gene that actually they cause the disease. So we try to find out, we try to shortlist those variations that they've got, they carry, and then we put it in the context of the molecular biology behind that disease, behind the pathway that mutation going to affect. So it's about understanding the illness that the person presents with and once you know that. But it also affects the nature of the treatment you give them, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. So this is that uh, we are hoping in future, maybe very near future. So if we can just uh, classify same disease classification, well, actually subclass them into that manifestation comes from 10 mutations, for example, and say like a percentage of the population, they have uh, mutation number one, percentage they have mutation number two. And because we know that that variety specifically work with a very particular part of the pathway that generate that disease, then, then we can actually design appropriate uh, drug and medication for that particular person for that subset of the population, basically. 
Well, I'm thinking there's a huge amount of time and expense that goes into clinical trials of, say, a drug, and you'll get a range of responses, which might be good or they might be not so good. And your research is helping to figure out why some person reacts well to a treatment and, and another person does not. Is that correct? Well, this is correct. So this is, again, goes back to the genetics behind that. So some people, they do not really uh, respond well because they are really different. You know, because the genetic behind that is different. That's why they they respond, you know, differently. And also, of course, there is a a whole lot of interaction between different genes. Maybe they have the same genetics, but still they have genetic interactions there. So it it can get really, really complicated. But we try to make it very simple and we try to make um, to find out about those major causation of the disease and just try to tailor that drug based on that. It's strikes me that this is really an emerging frontier of science. Would you say this is very, very early days? Well, in some areas, well, we are um, almost there. So, yes, yeah, so around the world, uh, not that many countries or institutes are able to do that. As you said, you know, it needs really good funding <laughs> and hard work and good researchers behind it. But, yes, we are in the early stage. We are pioneer here in the Center of Personalized Immunology in, in Canberra and uh, at NU as as well as in the Canberra Hospital for diseases related to immunodeficiency and autoimmunity. But I know that around the world, there are some other you know, centers that they work in different other diseases, actually. But I can say that we are pioneer here for autoimmunity <laughs> and immunodeficiency, yes. Well, genetic testing has improved enormously, and I believe here at the John Curtin School of Medical Research, there's actually a genetic uh, sequencing lab. Is that correct? Yes, we've got a center here, actually, yes. So we we do that uh, sequencing, yes. Ah, and it's amazing how this can be done so cheaply now compared to what it was. So I'm just imagining me showing up at the hospital and I've got some disease and you would take a, maybe a cheek swab and then you would put do some genetic sequencing on that, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So, uh, well, for, for the patient, it, we are very uh, very easy and gentle on a patient, exactly. So we can just grab one or a few cells and we can extract the DNA out of it and then we put it through uh, sequencing for the um, you know, to find out all the profile of the genes and then we look at the algorithm of the known mutations and then we can uh, discover perhaps new mutations there or there is something that's been well known in terms of the disease-related mutation and varieties, uh, variation there, yes, and then we can do our research on it. Yeah, I'm imagining this huge database so you, you'll look for a particular genetic sequence, you look up the database and say you are of this type the cause is related to this and therefore this is the range of treatments that's best suited to you. Am I on the right track? Yes, yes, you're right uh, on the right track. So yes, correct. So we are dealing with an enormous, uh, huge database and we've got bioinformaticians, our colleagues. So I I said that we are a really big team uh, from medical doctors, researchers, scientists, bioinformaticians, all sort of people working together and collaborating so yes, so uh, we look at uh, we put the data through algorithm and then we know some mutations we, we can just actually put uh, the algorithm to tell us which one is um, damaging the that variation is damaging this is related or not and then this is the next step actually what we are doing now that we 
put that mutation into practice, we are looking at that mutation. We try to figure out if, if that mutation is functional or not if that mutation is related to that disease or not. So when we find out this, and then we can, you know, uh, look for the drug and how to stop, you know, that malfunction of that protein, for example. <laughs> well, Baha, you, you have a lot of passion in your work. What motivates you? Well, I think um, the ultimate goal, just helping people with disease. This is just uh, something that we all want to see. One day, everybody get the right treatment with the minimum side effect, perhaps. So, yes. Is there a particular person or a place or time or an event that, that, that sparked that passion in you? Well, I think... Um, my colleagues, <laughs> perhaps, you know, working in the hospital and working with all great scientists is a very hard work, as you can imagine. But, well, when I see them passionate, when I see all those beautiful results, when I see how we can put this in practice, how we can get closer and closer every day to the answer, to find a real medication, a real treatment for everyone in the world. So it makes us really happy and excited. Yes. That sounds like an advertisement for people to get into science and oh, yes. maybe into <laughs> medicine. Absolutely, absolutely. I think this is a fantastic job. It's a hard work, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worthwhile doing it. Well, next time I go in for some genetic testing, I'll keep my eye out for you, and thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, so, Christine Lee, here we are at the John Curtin School of Medical Research, where you're a third-year PhD student, and I'm reading the description of what you, your research is, and very technical tissue inhibitors of metalloproteinase rocks to scissors on patients oh, I love the metaphor rocks to the scissors on platelets exactly okay what, what's, what do you mean by that metaphor there it's great right so we think of metalloproteinases as the scissors so these are enzymes that cuts proteins on the surface of platelets so we think of them as scissors and then we've got we're trying to look for inhibitors, so things that actually block these scissors from functioning on the surface of platelets, and we call them rocks. So these rocks are, are what we think are the tissue inhibitors of metalloproteinases. Oh, now this has all got to do with uh, thrombosis, with, with blood clotting. Just take me briefly through the mechanism of blood clotting. Sure. So platelets, as you, uh, you may or may not have known, um, they are actually cell fragments. When you, for example, when you've got an injury to your skin and you start bleeding, platelets are the cell fragments that helps um, clot formation so that you do not bleed to death, uh, which is very important. But on the other hand, overactivation of platelets can lead to um, thrombotic conditions, for example, deep vein thrombosis and even stroke, which can um, lead to death. And heart attack, so you could also call it when good clots go bad, exactly. I, I guess. Exactly, that's right. That's a very good analogy over there. When good clots go bad. <laughs> now, your, uh, your research is about understanding the mechanism behind this. Just uh, can you briefly explain? Well, I, I presume it relates to this thing called the metallic. Let's not worry too much about that technical word. Yeah, yeah. just call it as enzyme. So when 
when you think of platelets, um, it's not just round cell fragments, but these platelets on their surface, they have um, multiple proteins. So these proteins are what uh, they are involved in the clot formation. So normally, platelets just surveys the vasculature. They run around the body um, looking for cell damage. And where it, when it detects there's an injury in your blood vessels, there are little, little proteins on its surface which becomes activated and makes these platelets sticky. And so these platelets would then actually stick to the, to the um, damaged site. Now, what we are trying to understand is what are the roles of these scissors or you know these little proteins on the surface of platelets. What do these scissors actually do um, when at the very beginning of clot formation? And understanding the roles of these scissors and potential rocks to them, for example, the inhibitors, would actually um, tell us a little bit more about the mechanism behind clot formation. And understanding that can help us to uh, potentially manage thrombosis risk, for example, in terms of trombo- um, deep vein thrombosis and stroke, you know, ha- and even in sepsis as well. Now, you, you used the term earlier, enzyme, and enzyme is a thing that, that facilitates a reaction or changes something without changing itself. That's right. Yeah, exactly. and I'm thinking of the cell wall. So this is, am I right that what this is doing is is changing the stickiness of the cell walls? Um, you can think of it that way. So what these enzymes do is they cleave, so they cut other um, proteins on the surface of platelets. So once these proteins, or we think of them as receptors, if these receptors get shared by the scissors of the platelets, the platelets will, can, will then become um, activated. And it's like flicking a switch on the cell itself. Are you doing... Well, is this lab research? How are you conducting this? Right. So what we do is um, we are very thankful to all our blood donors because all of our experiments are on human platelets. We are uh, constantly recruiting um, healthy blood donors for our experiments. Um, and we, we, we've got ethics to um, draw blood from these um, healthy blood donors. And then we do um, laboratory tests looking at platelet function on these healthy donors. So is this all in petri dishes and stuff like that? Uh, you can think of it that way. So we have got multiple um, studies, so not just in petri dishes, but we also do imaging, so microscopy, looking at platelet function that way. And we can also look at thrombus formation in real time under the microscope. So that's very, very cool. Oh, wow. And human cells? Human platelets, that's right. Yeah, no mouse studies in our group so far. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, uh, sounds like fundamental research in and this is how closely connected to any real treatment is this? Right. Um, um, our lab has published multiple um, articles on looking at multi- multiple human thrombotic conditions, and you know what the the work of our lab can help in advancing um, the management of these patients. So, um, for example, we've we've worked on things like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, whereby a small proportion of patients who are exposed to heparin uh, they actually um, get thromb- thrombosis as a, as a result of that due to their body producing um, an adverse reaction to the heparin. So, you know, our, our lab function on uh, looking at the function of platelets can help advance um, and hopefully manage the, these patients better in the future. Uh, what brought you into this line of research? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, so I was looking to do 
a project that is um, clinically translatable and hopefully um, has got this uh, from bench to bedside translation that is um, more easily achievable. So then I came across um, the work of my supervisor who uh, has very close ties to Canberra Hospital and one of my advisor is actually a hematologist at the hospital. So that is very, um, it, it gives us the advantage whereby we are able to have patient data ex- um, as well as human um, healthy donor data doing work on human platelets and, um, and that just brings us closer to being more clinically translatable and um, relatable to what's actually happening in the human body. Ah, well, it's uh, great to see you here today at the new investigator forum, part of the Australian Society for Medical Research. Uh, great day. Are you enjoying it? I enjoy it very, uh, very much so far. Um, we've got really good speakers, um, really good keynote speakers this morning, um, advising us on uh, potential careers uh, after research and um, opening our eyes to um, the other types of research that's available around the region. And you are, in fact, yes, you're speaking today. Good on you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm interviewing you now. I cannot pronounce your name, but you said call you Anna. But yeah. can you maybe pronounce your name properly for me? Uh, hello, I'm Zhi Jia. And you're a first-year PhD student? Yes, I'm a first-year PhD student so working on immunology genomics. Okay, now I'm reading the description that you've got here. It's very technical, and I'm going to read it aloud, and maybe you can then translate what this means. We'll have to do it one word at a time, perhaps. Sure, definitely. Um, So I'll just start with the beginning. It says a B1A cell expansion. Yes. Um, So in our cell, uh, in our body, we have B cells, which are uh, very important to produce antibodies. And there are two types of B cells, actually, uh, which are B1 and B2 cells. What we normally know is B2 cells. So this is about B1 cells, which is not well known. So they have different function, and different um, predominant location, and like very different from B2 cells. Uh, okay, now I'm thinking this extraordinarily complicated <laughs> immune system, which is one area of medicine I just... I know enough to know that I know absolutely nothing about it. The next word in the uh, description is expansion. What do you mean by that? Um, expansion means they have more, not only the percentage, but also the cell number. They have more uh, B1A cells. Okay, so the population of the, these B2 cells. We're getting there. We're, we're three words in now. Now, the next one caused by IRF4 with a heterozygous point mutation. Wow. Okay, let's start with IRF4. What's that? So IRF4 actually is a protein. So there are a lot of different type of proteins. Uh, some protein can regulate the expression of DNA, if you know, like the gene. Yep. So this uh, protein can regulate the gene expression. So, um, and it's called so there is a mutation in this IRF, and the regulation changed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the protein produced by the, your your DNA, yeah, and that mutation 
affects the B2 cell population? Uh, it's uh, not affect B, not only affect B2, but also affect B1 cells. Ah, sorry, B1, yes, okay. And heterozygous, so hetero means different, and zygous is something to do with genetics. <laughs> yeah, heterozygous is means, um, so there are two copies uh, of genes in one like in one gene yes. like you have two copies one from your mom and the other one from your dad and this gene uh, have one point difference difference ah, yeah, so ah. one maybe Y type another one maybe have a mutation at the same position that means heterozygous okay and then point mutation right that explains that on the DNA binding mechanism so binding mechanism what's a DNA Binding mechanism. So, as I said, RR4 is uh, a uh, protein which can regulate the gene expression. So, how it can regulate the gene expression? There is a domain of RR4. It can bind to DNA. That domain is DNA binding domain. Uh, okay, so I'm thinking of DNA as this big machinery, <laughs> big complicated piece of machinery, yeah. and then, but it has to be turned on and off part the, the operation. It's almost like you're driving a car, you're turning the wheel. Very rough analogy, but yes, you're nodding? Yes, kind of. Like you can let it on, let it off, kind of like that. Yeah. All right, now, we, we've started way, way down in the weeds. <laughs> let's, let's just bring it up a level. And so we're talking about the immune system and the effect of your genes on that and this heterozygous point thing. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean for a human being? Um, because so far it's not well identified in human, yeah. so uh, that's why we want to investigate more about this population. So we are not very clear about what they are doing. Or like we, it's part of our body, but what mechanism of this B1A cell? We don't know. That's why. Uh, that's what I'm going to investigate more. Okay. Now, what's the connection to a, a particular disease? Um, so far, so far we don't find a particular disease uh, happen for it. Like, but yeah, we just find. Is, is that because you're really doing fundamental research and it, we're going a few steps along, and you just we just haven't got there? Is that why? I, I think so. Yeah, because even though we have the disease, we may not know it's caused by BYA cells because we don't know much. Ah. That's what um, I feel. But yeah, we definitely will learn more about these cells. Okay, so you're understanding the fundamental mechanism and then where it leads. So you're year one in your study. Yes. Where are you at at the moment with that? Um, I think we still. I, I'm still at a very basic level. I need to approach more definitely. But um, I, I hope there. Yeah, there will have good results. Okay. In the you, you sound like someone who's just gone to the library. You've pulled out a huge pile of books and you've got them dumped all over the floor. And then there is some sense and you're trying to work out where you're going. They're very early for you at the moment. Have I sort of got that? <laughs> I think so, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what led you into this? What brought you here? 
I want to do masters here in Australia, and then I did a one-year honors with a one-year master re- research year with my current supervisor Anselm Anders. Then I find my project is very interesting, and then I decide to do a PhD. That's very natural. I didn't think more about that. It's just because my my project is really great, so I want to dig in and learn more about it. Well, it's uh, great. I look forward to uh, hearing your talk. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we're at the new investigator forum, uh, as which is being run by the Australian Society for Medical Research, and I'm interviewing Dr. C. Ming Man, and you're from the Immunology Department at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. Hello, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Hello, Rod. Nice to meet you. Oh, it's great to talk to interesting people, but your area is inflammation or the inflammatory response. Tell me briefly, well, what is the inflammatory response? Yeah, so uh, the inflammatory response comes from your immune system. So you, your immune system can induce an inflammation depending on the context that is experienced by your body. So if your body is being challenged or infected by a bacteria or viruses, then your immune system wants to respond against that and detect that pathogen and trigger an infl- inflammation response, which means that sometimes you get this heat and swelling and feverish um, kind of feeling and that's because your immune system is in play and trying to attack and kill the pathogen and so you can be healthy again. So we, we've all had the experience of a cut, you know, and it gets uh, sore and then it goes red and swells. What's the mechanism behind that? What's going on inside the inflammation? That's a great question, Rod. So when you get a cut, there are some bacteria or some germs that on your on your skin that are now able to break the skin barrier and to enter your tissue. And now that's a bad sign because if you don't control it, the bacteria can spread all over your body and it goes systemic and you get septic shock and you may potentially die. So what happened is that the immune system is saying, oh, we can sense this danger coming in. We now need to get rid of them. And so the immune cells are moving to that area of the cut and trying to seal it, but also trying to eat it, eat the, eat the pathogens that are coming in and to destroy them before they have the opportunity to spread to different places and make you sick. Uh, so the swelling itself, is it actually the additional cells? Is it also increased blood flow and something like that? That's a great question. The, the increased inflammation and the redness is because you have more blood cells coming in, both red cells and white cells that are going to attack the pathogen. And then because you also have increased blood flow, that allows more cells to get recruited to the, to the region. And that's how you get this swelling and heat are being produced as well. And you get that telltale redness. What's the significance of pus? What is pus? It's a pretty loaded or disgusting topic, really, but what is it? Basically, pus, it is, it is disgusting, but it's good for you because it basically is a, it's a swarm of white cells that are helping you to clear the pathogen. So that's why they're white, because there's no red blood cells in it. So they're only white blood cells. So that gives it without much coloration or this um, yellowish color. So the, the white puffs, pus are actually there killing your pathogen, helping you to recover. 
Ah, okay. Now, there's a good side to the inflammatory response, but it isn't necessarily good. What are some of the downsides of it? Inflammation can be good and bad. So in conditions which are bad, it could lead to devastating consequences like autoimmunity, autoinflammatory diseases and cancer. And that's because inflammation is good for a short amount of time. But if your body is unable to control the inflammation and you get consistent inflammation at the low level, you get tissue damage because the, the immune cells are there to attack not just pathogen, but it can also be misdirected and start attacking your own tissue. And so that is the basis of developing autoimmune disease because your immune system are attacking your own cells and that's how you get sick as well. Ah, okay, and it's putting pressure on the, your internal organs. Now, your research relates to the immune response and cancer tumours. Uh, we've been talking mostly about uh, a damage or like a scar or uh, an injury, but what's the relevance to a tumour? So tumour is very complex and like cancer, it's also a very complex issue and there's no single answer. What we know at the time, at right now, is that the immune system is helping um, the, the, the cells to uh, prevent from dividing. So when you have inflammation, there must be a mechanism for the immune system to shut down, right? So that's how you prevent yourself from getting sick because once your, um, your infection is clear, you want it to shut down the inflammation. But sometimes certain people have mutations in their genes um, that impair the ability to shut down the immune system. So what happens is that if the immune system doesn't, doesn't get shut down, you get this persistent low-grade inflammation over time. And then that's how the cells behave differently, and that's how they divide like crazy, and that's how you form a tumor. And so our research is trying to understand how we can modulate the immune system to ask it to stop at the right time. And so then that will help prevent people who have mutations that cannot stop their inflammation to stop their inflammation and prevent tumor development. Ah, so yes, we want to block the tumor, but uh, is inflammation useful? Is it a helpful thing around a tumor? Do you want to stop it completely or you just want to control it? We don't want it to complete stop, uh, completely stop them because some inflammation is still good because some immune cells are going there to attack the tumor. So there's some great research going on to try to teach these cells to go and target the tumor and attack them and that's what we call immunotherapy. Oh, that's fantastic. And how far along research are you now? I think we're getting close. We're, we're getting closer every single day. And that's the beauty of doing medical research. We don't have an answer overnight, but over the years we have developed the tools and the skills to address this question, find new drugs that we can target immune cells, and hopefully very shortly we'll have new therapies to target cancer of all different types. Well, for those people who are suffering cancer, uh, are they are waiting impatiently for research such as yours, uh, fundamental research, a lot of it, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Josephine Wong, you've just given a talk here at the New Investigator Forum. Yep. <laughs> And your work is looking at a thing called macular degeneration. Yeah. Let's just give me a quick description of what is macular degeneration. So macular degeneration is a major cause of blindness um, among the elderly across um, the Western countries, so including the Australia. So they often occur in 
that people are over 65 years old, and these AMD patients usually have a loss of central vision because um, there is a loss of them, like some kind of receptors in their eye for sensing the light. So that leads to a, a loss in their vision or even complete blindness. I've seen pictures that show what it would be like for somebody with it, and the central of part of their vision is like it's got all milky, blurry. It's horrible. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and currently there are no treatments for like the more common form. Yeah. And now the cause of it goes back to the retina in the back of the eye, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's um, it origins from the retina of the eye. So it's like the network at the back of the eye. So what what happens to the retina to cause this? Um, like there are many factors um, causing AMD. For example, there can be aging factors, genetic factors, and environmental factors. Um, we don't actually sure about like which other factors may be involved in this disease, but we are trying to find like ways to treat that. So inflammation, you're doing well. Is the inflammation in the retina, and what do we know what causes that inflammation? What triggers the inflammation? Uh, we don't actually know what causes um, the inflammation symptom in AMD, but we think that um, there is a way to regulate this inflammatory pathway, and then it may slow down um, AMD progression. So, it, like, if we can develop um, methods to target this inflammatory pathway, um, we may be able to treat AMD. But uh, yes, there's a lot, many things in medicine that we don't know, like why I'm going deaf, nobody knows. But uh, there's a genetic connection, right? Yeah, so our, our lab focuses on microRNAs. So these are the um, gene regulators, um, and we thought that they play a role in regulating the inflammation pathway. So yeah, like. Because like, pe different people may have different expression of microRNAs in their body, so that, make, that can be a genetic factors. <laughs> okay, so how are you going about this research? I'm thinking you've got some cell tissues in a in a petri dish, yeah. and what are you doing? Oh, we're um, not exactly doing it on petri dish, but we are extracting um, different cell types from the retina of. Um, mouse and we are we are extracting um, cells from like the wild type mouse and also mouse with um, dry AMT characteristics so like when we do experiments on these cells um, they may give some information about how inflammation occurs in these cells and we also do some experiments with um, human cell lines as well so w would it be true to say that this is fundamental research and then how it translates into some sort of therapies further down the track? So we are trying to see if um, the microRNAs, so as I've talked about, like they are the master gene regulators. So if these microRNAs can really regulate the inflammatory pathway, we may be able to like Hey, around with these microns and see if we can reduce inflammation in AMD.
So my, my translation of that into simplistic terms is uh, the genetic machinery. You're understanding how the genetic mechanism works and the, what's it called here? The, uh, the inflammasome, the inflammatory response in the retina. And, and well, how... how yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're pretty right, actually. <laughs> well, well, there you go. You can listen to my paper <laughs> later this afternoon. Uh, what got you into this? What motivated you to be here in the first place? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Like, um, I actually want to do research um, since high school, but I don't really have an interest in field in particular, and. I've been doing research in different biological fields, but I think, to me, eyes are really important organs because um, I really love to see like what happens around the world with my eyes, and I think I've got like most problem with my eyes for myself. So like, I would like to do eye research for the future. Well, uh, hopefully I, I won't get macular degeneration as well as hearing loss, but uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Josephine. Thank you. So we're here at the New Investigator Forum, and we have one of the conference organisers. Yes, the, um, um, I'm the convener of the committee, yes. I should <laughs> say who you are. You are Fazi. Called Bache. Yes, yeah. What have been the highlights this morning? Uh, what I chose for the speakers was that not only these uh, new scientists and the people who are doing their PhD or they are early career researchers in the science, they need to uh, be inspired by the career path that they are taking. So I had three speakers, which someone, so, so was someone from um, public service, someone was from academia and someone was from industry and he's an entrepreneur but then I think they inspired the, the audience in the room um, very well because when she started talking about the public service she said all about about highs and downs that you might experience in the public service and then when Seeming started talking about academia he said to all things about the challenges that he has been facing or all the questions or the moments that he is not sure about what's happening next, especially in academia, you will have a lot of those moments. And now how he overcame and he's who he is now. Uh, and uh, with Damien, he started talking about how he took his PhD and research and he's putting it into practice and he's building a small company, a small product, and he's going through the industry phase. Well, you used a key word there. You said inspired. Yep. But the other word that strikes me about what you're saying is leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So these three people are the successful leaders in that, in that career type. And that's why I asked them when they were giving talks, they could be like a role model to these people. And they can think about that how they can make a change in their career of becoming a leader. Because when you're stepping out of your comfort zone, when you want to make a change, when you want to make a decision, this is how you, uh, how you decide to start leading your 
your own life and you have to have the leadership ability to take the and it's it's not just the the glossy look what I've achieved what you're touching on there is the challenges where is it difficult and it's not always an easy path no, absolutely not. So the what I liked about these sessions was that they were not just coming here saying that, look how successful I am, and I did this, it worked, I did that, it worked, and not just talking about those highlights of success, but they were talking about the moments that they failed too, or they are feeling that they are not so great in that and they need to improve. So that, that was something that inspired these people. So they're not thinking that only perfect people will be successful in the war they are someone like them yes there's someone like somebody like me or somebody like somebody sitting in the audience and what you're suggesting now is science isn't just about the facts about the mechanism the laboratories people in white lab coats it's about people and it's about inspiration it's about the emotion because we are after all all human beings doing this yeah, absolutely. So they can see example of very common people when they are talking about the path that they were taking. They were like bachelor or they were simple people at the beginning to start with, but things that they were coming on their way and they took the, those challenges and risks to become who they are now. So this well, is well, Farsi, looking forward to some of the speakers this afternoon. The inspiration and the leadership. Uh, thank you very much. Righto, Tasneem Rahman, uh, actually your postdoctoral research fellow, aren't you? Yes, and you're one of the organisers of the event here for the Australian Society of Medical Research. How's it been? Uh, thanks, Rod. Yeah, so far the conference really went very well, and as you as you have seen, like a lot of crowd was there, and we really enjoyed throughout the beautiful, beautiful presentations from our speak. So on that sundowner, even it's it, it as it as you have seen, it's uh, it's very relaxing talk, and um, uh, by Dr. Hannah Clark from ACT Health. Every year we organize this conference, and we are also looking forward to our listeners for the next year conference that would again be sometime on June uh, um, probably on 7th as well uh, on 2019 so we will also have uh, scientists at the pop um, the pop show so uh, that is uh, organized by fill up on science so for the more information regarding the scientist on the pub you just can uh, Facebook that event on 11th July health and medical in the pub and uh, that is going to be occurred on Smith's Alternative on Civic. So uh, that's going to be an, another um, interesting program from uh, ASMRACT. And that is going to be occurred on 11th of July at, uh, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. So just have your beer, listen some interesting science talk. And we are, uh, we are looking forward for all our listeners to be there on the pub on that moment. Uh, we, we like science with a beer. And what's really been noticeable today is there's a real excitement. And I couldn't help noticing all the people standing around the posters and excitedly talking and showing each other their work and that's a wonderful thing. Yes and uh, uh, and I would like to thank from the bottom of my heart to you Rod and your Fuzzy Logic Science Show and 2XX FM 98.3 for having this huge coverage for all day long. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure and we look forward to the next event.